Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm excited to have our guest Deirdre Wolinick, the mother of none other than rock climber Alex Honnold. Deirdre's new memoir is out. It's called The Sharp End of Life, and it chronicles her journey into rock climbing uh, as a way to kind of deal with fear and break through those self-imposed limits we all put on ourselves. She recounts the challenges of growing up in a conservative Polish family in New York City, and then as a young woman, she breaks with her family traditions and moves to California to pursue a relationship with a man who had become her husband, Charlie Honnold. They have two children, Alex and Stasia. Shortly thereafter, Charlie sort of began drifting away from the family, leaving Deirdre to raise two children while also juggling work as a teacher. After Charlie's death and after Alex and Stasia move out, Deirdre takes up endurance running and rock climbing, and eventually, at age 66, she actually becomes the oldest woman on record to climb El Capitan, which is the 3,000-foot the granite wall in Yosemite. And she did that with the help of her son, who is, of course, one of the most daring rock climbers on the planet. I had to, over the years, learn to deal with what he does, you know, to dial it back and just trust his judgment. You know, let him decide what he can do. He's the only one who can decide that. Deirdre talks about the interesting experience of raising Alex Honnold and then ultimately going on and climbing these classic Yosemite routes with him. She also talks a lot about how she used physical training to overcome her longstanding fears and really take control of her life. It's a great conversation, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. We'll get to my conversation with Deirdre in just a moment, but first, this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with author Deirdre Wolinick. Welcome to the podcast, Deirdre. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. We haven't, I was thinking, we haven't seen each other since last fall right. when I went to El Cap Meadow to interview Alex right. about Free Solo just before it was premiering. Right. And I actually bumped into you in the, the little parking strip there and got to talking. And it was funny because I, you know, I chatted with you and I was like, oh, I'm here to meet Alex. And you seemed surprised. I don't think you knew that he was there. And then afterwards, I went and chatted with Alex and he was like, oh, my mom's here? Like, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think at the time We come, you were, we go. <laughs> yeah. I think at the time you were getting ready to jug up a line on El Cap. Yes. And that was when... I was practicing. Yeah. And it sort of cemented it for me at that moment. It was like, oh, this isn't just something that you do to bond with your son or it's like well, a lifestyle. Well, it was for that, but, uh, kind of, but yeah. yeah. It's a lifestyle. I was, I was training that day. Yeah. What were you training for? I'm the oldest woman to ever climb El Capitan. And I did that two years ago in, on Halloween day of uh, 17. And I did it with my son, which is really super. And so I trained for many weeks to do that. So I'd go to Yosemite every week. And I would go jugging for about two days, do some cardio, some, some heavy-duty cardio training on the walls for, for another day. I did that for about 17 or 18 weeks. Well, before we get into that, I just want to I have a little timeline here okay. that I wanted to kind of run by you. So June 2017, Alex solos El Cap. What are your first thoughts? <laughs> oh, that would, that would be another book right there. <laughs> um, I, as always, Alex doesn't ever tell me about his free solos beforehand, which I've always appreciated all my life, all his life. So I didn't know he was going to do it. In fact, I was with him, with friends. We were with him the day before. 
And we went hiking, and he gave us a little tour and chatted with us, and then we said goodbye because my friends and I were driving up to Portland to see his sister. His sister lives in Portland mm-hmm. the next day. So we left the valley that afternoon. He said he was going to go to bed early that day and maybe watch some movies. So the next day I was driving up I-5 with my friends, and we pulled off at a, a rest area and uh, you know to have a snack. And it was early in the morning. Uh, he did it like at six. He started at six something in the morning, so like what, three hours, you know, after that, uh, Stacia uh, texted me. His sister, Stacia, had had just found out, so she texted me, and I, that's how I got the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What was your you know immediate reaction in the book? You say that it was incomprehensible to you. Uh, you it still that. is. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? He did what? <laughs> yeah. It took it. I, Took me a while to come down enough to get back in the car and keep driving. <laughs> you know, I am mom. I am used to this kind of thing, but still, I'm mom. And it took me a while. And the two two people I was with are also parents of young young adults like that. And we kind of sat there for a while and talked about what that meant. Yeah, how did that conversation go with them, with these other parents? Well, it, it was it was kind of odd. I mean, they they had uh, seen El Cap the previous day for the first time in their lives. You know, mm. they're from France. They'd never been to the United States before. So I took them on a tour of California. That's what we were doing, drive, driving all the way up to, to Portland. And so they, they they tried to wrap their heads around it, but and I tried to wrap my head around it. And we just kind of hemmed and hawed and had our little cheese or whatever we had and left. <laughs> I you know, it takes it takes a while to wrap your mind around something like that. Sure. And then you see the film Free Solo. What are your first thoughts seeing it? Well, the same thoughts, the same kinds of thoughts that I thought all about, you know, what he just done. Um, the, the first time I watched it was really hard because, uh, you know, I have dialed it all back and I've been up there myself and I, I've learned how to climb kind of with that in the back of my mind try, and trying to understand what he does and be part of his life, and which has become my life as well. You know, I love climbing now too. So uh, I had to, over the years, learn to deal with what he does, you know, to dial it back and just trust his judgment, you know, let him decide what he can do. He's the only one who can decide that. And I just had to keep reminding myself of that as I, as I watched the movie because that's a pretty intense movie. Even if you don't know him, if, you know, if you're 100% sure how the movie ends, you still, it's a really intense movie. And that's a big credit to the, the, the filmmakers, mm-hmm. you know, to their editing skills, to their videography, videographic skills. So um, it was pretty intense, but I managed to keep it together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, uh, months after it comes out, Free Solo gets nominated for an yeah. Academy Award for Best yeah. Documentary. And won. And then eventually it wins. Yeah. So what's going through your head when it when it wins? I mean, this is I the thought most... it was I thought it was going to win. I was pretty sure it was going to win. Oh, you did? Yeah. I, I did. You know, from all all the criterion, criteria I knew uh, about the industry, and I, I just... And then when it won the BAFTA in England one week before, mm-hmm. and the BAFTA is kind of like their version of the Oscars. It is their version of the Oscars. And uh, when it won the BAFTA, you know, hands down, and the prince and the princess came and had, had the chat with Alex and, you know, examined his hands, and <laughs> they were really taken with it. Um, 
so when all that happened, I kind of solidified it for me. I kind of knew it was going to win. Nonetheless, it was still a nice surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Has it changed anything for you in terms of your thinking about what Alex does or how no, it can no, reach people? No, no. no. The movie was them. It wasn't him. He was going right. to do this climb anyway. Right. Whether anybody watched or not, <laughs> he was going to eventually try to solo, to free solo El Cap. You know, it's been a long-term goal of his, so, and I didn't know that because <laughs> he never tells me about his free solos. And that's not the kind of thing you talk about with your mother, you know, or anybody else who might worry about you, really, you know. Mm -hmm. You want your mind clear for this kind of thing, super clear. So, uh, no, it hasn't changed anything. It's just a movie. It's just out there, and it's nice, you know, <laughs> but it hasn't really changed anything. Okay. So you start climbing at age 58. Right. What's that like? <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, uh, I had started running, long distance running, when at 55, I think I was. And I started, got into it because of my kids. And uh, they were very encouraging. And, and, you know, they just had such a good time at all their sports. I, I wanted to try them. And Stacia is a long distance runner and a long distance cyclist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did a little bit of cycling with her. I'll never be, I, mean, I don't know, I won't say never. Yeah, I'll never say never again. <laughs> you never know. But um, I may someday do a long-distance bicycle ride. But um, the running, I found out that I could do. Little by little, I kind of bumped up my mileage a little. And, and Alex is very encouraging. Alex's take on any kind of training or any kind of attempt of anything, physical we're talking about, is always kind of the same. If you can do one mile or whatever it is, you can do two. If you can do three miles, you can do four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is, his, this is his take on life, you know. And this really removes all limits. There are no limits except those which you impose on yourself. Unfortunately, a lot of people accept other people's limits on them. And that's kind of what my book is about. Right. You know, my book is about not buying into those limits that other people put on you. They say, oh, you can't do that. You're uh, you're too young, too old, you're too fat. You're a girl. You're not supposed to, whatever. You know, to buy into those things is, is self-defeating. Yeah, there's a line in the book you have. It's to the effect of there are many forms of living and many mm -hmm. forms of dying. The tough part is figuring out which form right. you want to pursue or right. identifying the form. There are a lot of people on this planet who are just kind of biding their time, you know, till they shuffle off. And because of a lot of these limits that are imposed on us, and if you just think it through, don't buy into these silly limits, you can do anything, mm -hmm. anything that you really set your mind to. Yeah, there's, you talk about limits, and I think what that, how that translates for most people is it's measured in fear. Yeah, often, and, often. Yeah, and you said that climb, in the book you say climbing brought out fears that you didn't know you had <laughs> and kind of forced you to confront them or gave you the opportunity to confront them. So I was just wondering if you could tell us what those fears were and how climbing, you know, gave you a, a mechanism for dealing with them. This is a big question. <laughs> it's, this is another book, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I've never been a fearful person. I grew up with fearful grown-ups, you know, all around me, and I always thought that was terrible. I, I, I always knew that when I grew up, I wasn't going to be like that, you know. 
So I was fearful, but I had these physical limits on me. I was a girl in New York City. I was supposed to wear dresses and supposed to behave myself. And my mother was handicapped, so I had to help all the time and stay home. And and so I had a lot of limits put on me. But in my head, I knew that they were just external limits. And I was in charge, you know, of what I, I believed myself capable of. And uh, fear, fear takes many forms. Um, I had never really pushed my physical limits. I had pushed other limits. I, I, I learned language after language. I mean, I speak lots of languages. I've taught many languages in many places. And um, I've, I've been an orchestra conductor for several years. And, and I was a, I've done many jobs. I worked at air, airports, and I, worked a, I was a multilingual tour guide. And I learned how to do things that involved the brain, you know, so I had no limits that way from other people. But I had never really tested my physical limits because they kept telling me, you know, oh, you're a girl, don't do this. You're you know, too old, don't do this. And all my colleagues at the college were always, you know, I would come in on Monday morning, we'd all chat about, you know, what would you do this weekend? And I'd tell them, I went to Lover's Leap and we climbed this and that. And they were like appalled. Deirdre, you shouldn't be doing that. Mm. You know, you've you got to get hurt. That's what everybody's big concern is. You've got to get hurt. Um, so, and, and the running bit, I, I, I had grown up in a household, um, for, this is back in the old days, in, in a, in an Eastern European kind of household after World War II. Things were pretty controlled, if you want to call it that. And, uh, the girls especially stayed home with, you know, their mother and father until they were married. That was it. That's the way it went. You know, I never really bought into that, but I stayed anyway just because it was expedient, and my brother did as well. And we were both teachers who were still living at home. But that's the way it was back then. And, um, you know, that's what everybody did. And the house was filled with cigar and cigarette smoke all the time. Both my parents smoked all the time. They didn't know any better back then. You know, they really didn't. It was the cool thing to do, you know. Lived mm -hmm. in the big city. My mother's from Pennsylvania, so now she lived in the big city. You know, we lived in New York. And it was cool to be cool. So I grew up in this cloud of cigar and cigar. I knew, quote, unquote, that I could never run. I could never be anything really physical because I had trouble breathing. Oh, okay. You know, it, it destroys your lungs. Secondhand smoke. It's sure, really yeah. bad for you. I could be the poster child for secondhand smoke. So anything more more strenuous than sitting still, I would huff and puff, you know. So I knew, quote unquote, that I couldn't be a runner. But I didn't know that you can train yourself up out of that abyss, you know, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I started, and uh, thanks to both of my kids, and they encouraged me and encouraged me. And there's a really interesting passage story in the book about that. The day that changed my life completely, and that was the, when I did the run to feed the hungry mm -hmm. in Sacramento. Um, 6.2 miles, 10K. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine running six miles. That's, a, that's quite a distance if you've never run, you know? But uh, I started little by little, started following Alex's advice, and you know, you know, I'd come home and say, Alex, I ran a mile with the dog this, this evening. He said, cool, Mom, if you can do one, you can do two. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do two, you can do three. And on it went. Yeah. And on it went. And finally, I wound up doing marathons and half marathons. I've done four marathons. Yeah. This person who huffed and puffed, she got off the chair, you know. So you never know. Yeah, it sounds like you 
you know, used this physical training as a way to kind of deal with some of the limits that you felt like were put on you when you were younger. Yeah, for sure. So what is it about the, you know, the physical training, the the act of being physical? Well, there's something about surpassing your, what you thought was your limit that is immensely, immensely gratifying. You can't imagine that until you do it. And I had never really done it. I mean, I've gone for bike rides when I was young, but, you know, went hiking and stuff, but slowly. And, you know, I knew, quote, unquote, that I could, couldn't do more. But I was start, suddenly I was discovering that I could do more and then more and then even more and even more until, you know, I didn't I, – I still at this point don't know where my physical limits are for running or for any of the other stuff. But – um, there was not that much fear at this level involved in running. You know, the running was more convincing myself that, no, those are not my limits. Those were put on me, and I will not accept them, you know. That's not exactly fear. The fear <laughs> came in when I started rock climbing. Mm-hmm. That's what really puts the fear in you. Yeah. And it sounds like just as much as it was as getting into climbing – was about connecting with Alex. It also seemed like it was about you gaining control of your life. Yeah, it was for sure. You know, I had my life had been, it had been spun out of control, not by me, but by you know circumstances. One death and another death. My father, my mother, my father-in-law. Alex almost died, and and then I had four. I, I was, re, uh, what do you call it? re not reconstructing remodeling. Four houses at the same time, three on the East Coast and one in West Sacramento. And I was doing all this while working full time and while being executor from my late husband's, my late ex-husband's estate. Mm -hmm. All of this at the same time. It took years for that all to melt away, for me to finish all the the work. So I did nothing all the time, every day, every day but work. And then I started, you know. I finished, started finishing things up, and I, I had a little time to go play with my kids, you know, to experience their world, to go biking with Stacia, to go running with either of them, both of them, or to go. Uh, and then I got, uh, when I started running marathons, I started thinking, hmm, I'm sort of kind of an athlete now. Maybe I'm capable at this point of understanding what my son does when he goes out on these expeditions. He would leave, you know, for weeks at a time, go to Borneo or Siberia or South America, wherever, and he'd come back and tell me these wonderful stories, and I didn't understand what they meant. I didn't, it was a language that I didn't speak yet. You know, I spoke a lot of languages, but that wasn't one of them. And so I, I craved that. I wanted, to, I wanted to understand what he was telling me what he was doing. I wanted to understand what it meant for him, for his life. And, and uh, I, I kind of understood that, you know, people looking at what he, look at what he does and they say, oh, God, that's so dangerous. Well, that's a, kind of a knee-jerk reaction. I, I knew, you know, he was doing it and coming home. I knew it wasn't that dangerous. I didn't know why, though. I, I, I wanted to experience what he was up to mm-hmm. so I could be part of his life. I really wasn't at that point. I was just mom, you know. And uh, so that's kind of what got me into it. Yeah. Well, you touched on something there that I wanted to, to bring up with you. And it, it goes all the way back to Alex's childhood. A lot of this book is about parenting and, and raising your two children. Right. And 
in the book, you know, when Alex is a young child, you mention him climbing everything in sight. And as a result of that, kind of becoming this target of ridicule from other parents, it's like he, mm. he, be, he, is, he manifests all of their insecurities about their own right. children. Right. And they tell you that you need to control your son, stop him from climbing things, he's mm. setting a bad example, that kind of thing. And that has, I think, followed Alex a little bit. Like, there have been other criticisms, yes. you know, that have been leveled against yeah. him as he pulls off these uh, major climbing feats and, mm -hmm. and excursions. And so I was just wondering what you make of that, having experienced that when he was a young child and then seeing it come up now when he's an adult. That's a, that's a big question. You have a lot of big questions. Um, yeah, when he was a kid, of course... Like you said, it manifests this. This feeds that topic of fear. Parents fear for their children. Obviously, that the parents' main job is to protect their children, see that they live to adulthood. And uh, you know, the other parents would see what Alex was doing. And, oh goodness, can't you control him? You know. Right. And and Alex wasn't interested in baseball or soccer or any of those other things. He just wanted to climb. And this this was not one of their most parents what do you want to call it, um, approved choices, you know, as an endeavor for their kids. Um, so they just didn't buy into it as, a, as an option for mm -hmm. children. You know, it was way too dangerous for children. Yeah, he shouldn't be doing this. I could see, on, of course, you know, they didn't live with him on a day-to-day -day basis. I could see that he was totally in control. He knew what he was doing, and he could do these things and come back down, and he was fine, and... And there was no need for concern. Of course, I was concerned. I didn't know about climbing when he was little. I didn't know climbing was a sport. I'd never heard of such a thing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in the mainstream like it is now. So, But they didn't you know, live with it on a daily basis. They didn't see how sure he was, how safe he was. You know, Their concern was for his safety and for my health because I was always worn down when he was little. I never had a moment to myself because hmm. I... My, in retrospect, I might have had, had I known what he was capable of, but had I known what climbing was and you know what he was, what he could do, I might have relaxed a little bit more and not, you know, I couldn't take my eyes off him for like seven seconds, you know, he'd be up on the roof or up on the the the, the shower bar or something, you know, up on something high, mm -hmm. and I didn't know that this was okay, you know, I was still learning myself, so yeah, it was a, it was a. I had to really, really channel this this uh, concept of not listening to other people's limits. The same theme, these same concerns emerge in Free Solo, too, where mm -hmm. some of his friends, I mean, obviously other mm -hmm. elite climbers, can't bring themselves to watch him right. do this climb or to be yeah. part of it. Oh, it's nerve-wracking to watch Free Soloing. If you don't know how it's going to turn out, sure. Oh, God, I would never want to watch it. Well, that's what makes me wonder about it is because these aren't, people who don't understand what climbing is, aren't familiar, right. they know exactly what it is. They and do. that's, what and that's why they're afraid. Right. right, right, right. And I wonder if that you know, gives you pause or, or makes you reconsider any of this. Well, not reconsider. I mean, he's going to do these things sure. regardless. This is who he is. And it's all he's ever wanted. And it's what feeds his soul. You know, it makes him happy. And why would you want to take that away from your child? You know, really. So, no, not reconsider, but but um, I really have to reel it back, you know, reel it in, because um, I know what can happen, you know. I've been up there now myself. Right. When you look down, boy, you 
easily see those headlines, you know, what could happen. But you have to just accept his judgment. He's the only one who can judge whether he can do these things. And, and yes, free solving is a 100% individual sport. I mean, there are a lot of individual sports, you know, but this one is 100% in the head of the individual who's going to be doing it. He's the only one who knows how his fingers feel, how his skin is, what the weather's like, how he feels, you know, in every way. So I, 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 it would be hubris on my part to try to weigh in on that decision. Your late husband, Alex and Stacey's father, it's clear that something, as we read the book, it's clear that something is going on with him. Something, it, it's like it, something is hampering his ability to process his environment in a way that makes sense to you. He's neglectful. He's kind of distant. He, but he also loves adventuring and exploring the outdoors, and he loves adventuring with your children. And it seems like those experiences were really formative for Alex and Stasia in terms of their development, in terms of the lives that they lead as adults. And I, so I just wondered how you kind of reconcile all that there's this sort of estrangement maybe if you can characterize it that way on the part of Charlie from, from the family. Um, but then this flip side of him, you know, it also planted something in your children that it seems like has helped them grow into these like intelligent, independent adults with rich lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but yeah, he, his love of the outdoors definitely fed their love of the outdoors as mine did as well. Um, yeah, we started them camping when they were babies, you know, one and three, and they loved it. Camping is great for kids. It's absolutely great. Traveling in general is great for kids. People, you know, often say, oh, I'm going to wait until my kids are old enough to travel. That's nonsense. Children are traveling through every day of their lives. They don't know any different. Hmm. They don't know how things are supposed to be anywhere. Children are born travelers and camping is an extension of that so yeah his love of the outdoors and of the mountains definitely definitely helped feed that that uh, lifestyle of theirs yeah i wanted to ask you about stacia mm -hmm. she you started running to in part get grow closer to her is that right a little yeah a little bit yeah part of it and what um you know i asked when i had alex on the podcast last fall i asked him about her um, some of his friends who I'd reached out to in advance told me, they were like, ask him about his sister. She's yeah. got kind of this interesting yeah. lifestyle. She's, yeah. if I'm understanding it right, she's a vegan. She doesn't yeah. own a car. She doesn't yeah. use a smartphone. Yeah. Uh, she often goes off on these, um, thousand mile bike rides. Yeah. yeah. These like yeah. long outdoor and, you know, adventures and endurance right. feats by herself. And, um, so I'm, I wonder what of her lifestyle has, has rubbed off on you. Um, well, just in general, um, appreciating her, her her choices, some of her choices. You know, when I was you know twenty years ago, her, some of her choices were kind of kind of dubious to me, but I didn't try to shut her down. Just like I didn't try to shut him down, and trying to understand you know what she loved and what drove her, and, and yeah, she's an amazing individual. She kind, both of them are kind of limitless in what they'll try you know mm -hmm. not in the risk um meaning of that you know they're not like evil knievel kind of what's the word i'm looking for daredevils yeah exactly that's that's it <laughs> that's yeah. the word thank you they're not daredevils at all especially alex i mean he trained for 10 years for this climb that's not a daredevil mm -hmm. that's methodical and thoughtful and you know and 
mostly of all thoughtful, you know, both of them are like that. And so it was wonderful to watch them blossom in their respective sports. And she, yeah, she's amazing. She, her last uh, long bike ride was from, she biked from Portland at the very top of Oregon down to South Lake Tahoe. And for that ride, you have to go over, I think, I think three mountain chains. You know, the Siskiyous, you go over the, the, the Cascades, you go over and into the Sierra. This is amazing. She doesn't think anything of it. It's just fun. Hmm. Like Alex, it's just fun. It's just what they do. Yeah. There's this point in the book, you're in your mid-20s. I think it's maybe right after you've made the decision to move away from your family on the East Coast to California to start a relationship with Charlie, the man who'd become your husband. And it, your parents don't really react to the news that you're leaving. And you say, no one ever said a word about anything that mattered in our house. And that just kind of stuck with me. I thought that was... Well, you have to understand the Eastern European mindset mm-hmm. to understand that remark. I've, I've come to appreciate this. Other people have said that to me too. I took for granted that people would understand, uh, you know, the post-war mindset, and I, I probably shouldn't have, but after World War II, and especially, you know, after World War II in New York City, New York was overrun with immigrants, people from all over Europe, all over the world, and my family was from Eastern Europe, from Poland, and the old country ways were very, very different than our American ways, very, very different, especially their ways of uh, child raising, you know, bringing up kids. So yeah. adults did not talk to children in that world. Uh, first off, the adults all spoke Polish and the kids all spoke English. Right. So there was that dichotomy. After the war, nobody wanted their children to speak anything but English. We were Americans, you know. But our grandparents and great uncles and everybody, they all spoke Polish. We had family gatherings. All the adults would hang out and speak Polish. We didn't understand a word of it, you know. So I, I could never talk with my grandparents and vice versa. Um, so... It was that right, right there. You have a, a complete dichotomy. You know, parents didn't talk to children. Children had nothing to add to adult conversation. Children didn't reason like adults. So you know, why bother? You know, that was kind of their attitude. You weren't an adult until you were a parent, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, keeping that in mind, that's what this this sentence means. They never discussed anything of import with us. We were just children. You know, mm-hmm. to them, we were their children and so they just uh, in that mindset that Eastern European approach to child raising the adults make all the decisions period end of story Mm -hmm. children obey that's the way we were raised you know so that's what I meant there they never discussed anything of import with us they just gave us orders Mm -hmm. and we and we obeyed yeah it sounds like you went the other way with your kids Uh, yes well when I was like three I, I could see the effects this had on us you know I, three, three and a half, I knew that if I ever had children, you know, I ever had babies, I didn't want them ever to feel like I felt. Mm-hmm. I didn't want ever to do the things that I saw my parents doing. Uh, not they, they weren't monsters. They were wonderful, loving parents, but they didn't know what to do about it. You know, they, mm-hmm. they didn't know how to relate to children. It was, that was the Eastern European way. It was the old country way. And so I... I was glad my grandparents decided to move to this country so I wouldn't have to, you know, be subject to that kind of rigorous uh, yeah. life, Weltanschauung, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it seems like that was, that's part of what, you know, as you go through the book, 
eventually when you start undertaking, you know, when you start climbing, some of these old, I don't know what you want to call them, demons or, mm. you know, this old baggage, mm. let's mm. say, baggage, is, yeah, is what yeah. you're trying to overcome, essentially, mm. with climbing. Is that right? Uh, by the time I started climbing, I had already got, gotten past all that stuff. The climbing was just so... Well, two reasons. I mean, I had always loved climbing when I was a little girl, but I wasn't supposed to do it. Mm. I was supposed to wear dresses, behave myself, you know, think... I followed all the little boys from the neighborhood, you know, up the garage roofs and up the trees and stuff. But I wasn't supposed to, you know, any of the adults saw us up there, they yell at us and, you know, that was that. That was the end of that. We had to obey. So I loved climbing. But and and then in the middle part of my life, I didn't know climbing was a sport, an organized sport. You know, I'd never heard of a climbing gym. (laughs) You know, we climbed trees and garages and, you know, fences and stuff, lampposts. Um, So... I was intrigued. I was kind of a little jealous. Alex was having a wonderful time out there, making a living at it even, doing what I knew I loved. And gee, why can't I do that? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of that, a little bit of, you know, oh, I want to try that too. I think I like it, you know? And uh, also I wanted to be part of his life. Like I said before, I didn't speak that language. You know, the jargon of climbing, it's very particular. It's very specific language. So I wanted to learn that language, and I wanted to be able to share his life. Yeah, so you start going to the gym, the local gym, climbing with some people there. Eventually you kind of migrate outdoors. Yeah, they start taking me outdoors. Yeah, Yeah. and then you start climbing with Alex in Yosemite, Uh and he starts leading you on routes. So can you talk about that a little bit, what those Um, early experiences? Sure. Um, Every year I get Alex. My my birthday is in September, and September, the fall in general, is uh, prime season in Yosemite. Climbers, the... Elite climbers and, and all climbers from all over the world come to Yosemite in the fall to train. And so um, Alex is always there in the fall, so I know this. And, and my birthday's in the fall, so instead of going out and buying me a you know, present I don't need, would you leave me up something spectacular? And every, every year he does. Hmm. You know, it has since 2010, 2010, yeah. And our, for our first one was Half Dome. Mm-hmm. It's uh, quite an ambitious first climb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of been the impetus, been our excuse to get together and go climb once a year. Yeah. And uh, is there any, are there any me- particularly memorable moments from those first couple of climbs? Oh, goodness. Nothing but. <laughs> yeah. Nothing but. I mean, my first, you know, big climb with him was Half Dome, not, not the front, not the f- Flat face of half dome. That's for elite climbers only. You know, I'll never do anything like that. I'll never be a really good climber, and I know that. But I have a great time. And the the as you're looking at half dome, the left shoulder of half dome is where the hikers go up. You know, the cable mm-hmm. route. On the right side, the west side is uh, there are several technical climbs. And so we went up one called Snake Dyke. And, uh, it w- oh, yeah, it was memorable in so many ways. <laughs> you have to read that story of the book. It goes into that. Oh, just the hike in was memorable. Uh, we almost got creamed by a bunch of boulders. And I, and, mm-hmm. and I had my first encounter, close encounter with a rattlesnake. And it, it, was, it was just like an epic hike in, four and a half miles of hiking. And when you hike with Alex, you don't dawdle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alex holds speed records on everything. Alex does not dawdle. Mm-hmm. So four hours of super 
fast hiking, and then we had lunch, and, and we climbed for the remainder of the day, like eight more hours, something like that. And so just in terms of physical limits alone, I was exhausted. Sure. Like half of the day, I was just, are we there yet? You know? Um, and mentally, you know, all these little things. By the time I encountered the rattlesnake, you know, after after the boulders and the, the stream and the rattlesnakes, I was like, okay, can we go home now? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think that we, we should climb after all those emotional moments I, I didn't know what I was capable of at that point but Alex was on his way up Alex had to be on the top that day because uh, the National Geographic crew was waiting for him up there so they could take the pictures one of which became the cover of the National Geographic magazine mm. that's the one where the uh, you know the verb Honolding yeah okay that's that's the Honolding cover from 2010 mm-hmm um, so after that we had our lunch and then we started up and I had never been on slab climbing before and it's all slab there's, right. there's nothing on Half Dome nothing, not a hold <laughs> not a lump, not a block there's nothing on Half Dome to hold it's all trust your feet kind of slab climbing and this was totally new to me and, and yeah he told me it was going to be slab climbing but I didn't know what that meant mm-hmm. I had never seen it before I'd been on slabs, like three or four feet of slab, but this was 4,000 feet of slab <laughs> or whatever it was, 2,000 feet of slab. So it was an alien experience to me. Mm-hmm. And I had never been on anything that exposed. And I got, I, 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 I forced myself to not look around, just to focus on the rock right in front of me so I could just do my job, get up this rock behind Alex. And by like the third pitch, my you know the angel on your right shoulder and the devil on your left shoulder, you know, my my they were, one of them was telling me to turn around. You're missing the most gorgeous view of your life. Mm. And so I agonized over that for another pitch or so, and then I finally got up the courage to turn around. And they were right. I was missing the most extraordinary view that I had ever had. It's like being in a helicopter up there with no helicopter. <laughs> you just there's nothing around you because when you turn around, the rock slopes away mm-hmm. behind you, and there's there's just nothing. It, it was amazing. It was amazing in every possible way. There's a fun moment from the book. I think it's when you guys are gearing up to climb Cathedral, okay, and you have you've loaded your your pack in your pockets with <laughs> snacks and water and a chalk bag and right. like all the gear, things I thought I would need all the things right. you thought you'd need and Alex just kind of goes through and like gives you a quick appraisal and just starts pulling stuff out and is like you don't need any of this he lightened me up and he was right <laughs> it was just a fun like yeah. uh, mother son moment I thought I really yeah it. yeah that's kind of how I saw it too I kept holding out for a little snack or a little extra water. I did convince him of one or two things, but more, mostly he was right. He knows, I mean, that I need to be lighter to go faster. And with him, you go really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we weren't going to go really fast. He knew that, but uh, so he wanted to get it as light as possible. Oh. And so I know you're in recuperation right now. Yes. But uh, what's next on your, on your agenda besides um, touring and, and promoting the book? What else do you have going on? Uh, all kinds of things. <laughs> I have a friend coming over from Germany who wants to sample California climbing. Oh, cool. I hope I'm up to it by then. She's coming in September, October. 
Um, but I, I, I have sampled, I've just briefly sampled um, climbing uh, in other countries. I've, I've climbed in Greece, I've climbed in France a little bit, climbed in uh, Mexico, Canada. And there, there's, there's amazing rocks all over the world, and they're all different, just a little bit different. You know, the setup is different, the kind of rock is different. Uh, so, and of course, I'm a language person, and I go on these trips, and it's, you know, cool in so many ways. I can use all my languages. Mm -hmm. Climb all these rocks. So I want to. I want to uh, try climbing in the Dolomites. I want to climb in the Alps. So I wasn't actually in the Alps. I was in the Le Calanque, which is on the Mediterranean in France. And so that'll be very different. I want to go back to Greece at some point. I want to go back to Mexico at some point. And I want to go climb in China. I just got an invitation from a friend in China Whoa. to go climb there. So I would love to go do that. And there's. And there's I want to go back to the gunks. I love the gunks in New mm -hmm. York State. Yeah. So, there's, oh, I got a whole long list of where I want to go and try climbing. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I just want okay. to say thanks very much for coming on. This is great. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks very much again to Deirdre. Her new memoir is called The Sharp End of Life. It's available on Amazon. It's an inspirational read for anyone looking for insights into pushing past their own personal limits. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or, or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time.